So I want you to imagine something with me this morning. Um, I want you to imagine that you're a contractor. And imagine that I approach you and I say, hey, I, I need your help. I've got this house. Uh, you know, I, I maybe haven't maintained it as well as I should. Uh, needs a little bit of work. I haven't invested in it like it needs to. Would you mind coming out and uh, I'll hire you to do some work? And you say, yeah, sure. You know, I'd, I'd be happy to help. Now imagine you roll up to the house and it looks something like this. <laughs> so you drive up and you're like, oh, buddy, we got to have a different conversation, right? This is, this is not work to be done. This is like, we got to redo the entire thing. And, and as a contractor, you're looking at me thinking like, weren't there warning signs? Like when floor joists were breaking, when windows were falling out, when the garage just almost caved, like, didn't you notice something was wrong? And you ignored all those warning signs. And now here we are where this is the condition of this house. Hard, hardly workable, right? Now, he, he, here's the metaphor that I want to draw, right? As a pastor, I have the privilege and the opportunity to work with a lot of married couples. Some couples at the beginning of their marriage, in pre-marriage, before, they get, uh, on, before their wedding day. Other couples, I work with them in, in hard moments of their relationship. And sadly, in others, it's how do we move forward after a relationship has ended? Here's the metaphor that I want to draw, though. I noticed over time that many couples wait until their marriage relationship is the relational equivalent of that house, right? Things are falling and caving in and crashing, and they come to me and they go, Pastor, we need help. And part of my conversation is, did, did you notice the warning signs, right? Nothing gets to that condition overnight. There are things that over time, when there's no investment, when there's no intentional pouring into, when there's no building up and maintaining and pushing forward and growth, those things over time deteriorate. The same is true with relationships. And so we wait until marriage relationships get to that point. And then we go, I think I need help. And often what I find is when couples come to me, they, they have this question about what tools can I implement? And over time, I've come to this observation that often we want tools before transformation, right? And part of my conversation with couples is, listen, tools are great, but there's a better question to ask. The better question is, is not what tools do I need? It's who do I need to become? It's not just what do I need to do, but it's how does Jesus need to change my heart and life? And so we can talk about transformation in the gospel, and then we can talk further about what kind of tools might help you in that process. And so this week, we get to 1 Peter uh, chapter 3, where Peter teaches us on marriage. And I want to suggest to you that part of what Peter offers is the transformative power of the gospel to change our marriages. It's this recognition that we need Jesus to be the chief cornerstone, as he said in in chapter 2. And it's because married life can be challenging, right? There's moments on on your wedding day. I just did a wedding yesterday. In fact, you know, the couple, they're hand in hand and they're making vows and they love each other. And it's hard when I tell them in pre-marriage counseling, listen, a day is coming probably in the next year where this person that you love so deeply, you'll have a moment where you're like, I can't stand them. (laughs) Right? There will be that moment when you go, I love you, but why? Early early on in in my marriage, uh, my wife's name is Lauren. We were going to the first family Christmas, extended family. Do you remember the first family Christmas? How it's kind of awkward. You don't really know people yet. You're kind of feeling out the family. They're feeling you out, even though you're already married. So we're, we're getting ready to go to Christmas. We're just hanging out at Lauren's uh, parents' house. And she goes, hey, why don't, why don't you get ready for family Christmas? I'm in jeans and a t-shirt. And I think in my head, I am ready. <laughs> She's like, no, go get ready. And so I go upstairs and I think, well, I'll put on the nice hooded sweatshirt, right? Not the, not the raggedy one. I put on the nice hooded sweatshirt and I come down and everybody's in dress clothes. And it's at that moment I knew I made a mistake, right? And so she goes, 
uh, why aren't you ready? I am ready. Right? And it was this moment where her family, you get dressed up and family Christmas is like a nice formal affair. My family Christmas was at grandma's farm and hoodie and jeans was dressed up, right? Especially the nice hoodie. And so I'm like, ah, uh, I don't even have dress clothes, right? So we got the privilege of the quiet car ride. Have you had the quiet car ride, right? We had to drive to Target and we're kind of driving in silence because I'm a little bit annoyed. She's a little bit annoyed and I have to go buy dress clothes and I don't want to spend money on the dress clothes that I don't really need, but I have to have them for family Christmas. Are you following the, right? And, and I think part of me wanted to laugh, but I knew that would not go over well, right? Like it's not the time to laugh. But it's in that moment where I realized like, oh, I dressed how I did because I had this perspective, like this is what family Christmas is, right? And she had this perspective that this is what family Christmas is. So she never offered like, hey, pack dress clothes. And I never thought to pack because we both had in mind that your family's like my family. Y'all, our families are very different, right? And it was this moment like, oh, I'm, I'm gonna have to grow and change and create room and space for my spouse in this thing called married life. And, and how do I do this? And I think Peter provides us some very life-changing, transformational realities of what married life can look like. So, so here's my big idea this morning. As Christians, our marriages should bear witness to the truth and transformation of the gospel. Like our marriage relationships should be a testimony to the power of what Jesus can do in our lives and how he can bring us together in unity and community. And so with that, we look at 1 Peter Chapter 3. 1 Peter 3. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives, when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past, who put their hope in God, used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you and the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Now, before we dive into this, let, let, let me make this uh, caveat. I'm sure as I read this passage, for some of us, alarm bells went off. We heard words like submit, respect, uh, weaker vessel, and, and we're hearing these keywords. And sometimes what we do is we bring our assumptions to what we think the text means without actually letting this text speak to us. So if you have alarm bells going off and you're going, man, this seems like Peter is subordinating women to men, I want to promise you that is not the case. In fact, I, I will argue throughout this message that Peter is elevating the roles of women, that he is revolutionizing the relationship of marriage, and he's doing it in a radical and countercultural way. So what, I, what I'm saying is stick with me, okay, as we walk through this text. The, the first thing that jumps out to me is that Peter talks about this reality of submission. Wives, submit to your husbands. I'll argue that he also encourages husbands to submit to their wives, but we'll get there. And, and we hear that word submit, and for some of us, we immediately go, I don't want that. Because submission feels negative, right? Submission feels culturally like a loss of status and control and power. I'm giving up my agency. I'm giving up my ability to make independent decisions. And so submission has a negative connotation for a lot of us. What, what I want to submit to you, actually, is that biblically... 
submission in marriage is not a loss of freedom. It's rather a deep commitment to live life alongside your spouse in both unity and community. It's actually about finding a way forward and when there, where there's a deep and intimate connection and where two actually become one flesh. Right? Scripture speaks of this reality that in marriage, the two become one flesh. Now, that's not just the sexual component. This is a metaphor for life that rather than living life individually, when you become one as husband and wife, you now do life together. In fact, in Matthew 19, Jesus quotes Genesis 2, and he says, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Well, what's always amazed me about that is he says, the two will become. It's a progressive verb. So think about this. In your wedding ceremony, which we spend tens of thousands of dollars to, to plan and prepare and countless hours, and then you get to the wedding ceremony, and it's like 25 minutes, right? And in a blink, it's like, guess we're married now. We're husband and wife. How do we do this thing? When Jesus quotes Genesis 2, he says, the two will become one flesh. The wedding ceremony happens in an instant, but you will spend the rest of your life working out the implications of the vow that you made. You will spend the rest of your life asking this question day in and day out. How do I push forward in this journey to become one flesh? How how do we as husband and wife move forward in unity and in intimacy in a way in which our lives are bound together, not as individuals sort of doing life in parallel. No, no, no. As husband and wife becoming one flesh and living life together in unity. And I think this is precisely what Peter guides us into. So I want to look at this through three questions. Number one, what is submission? Secondly, a practical question of what does submission look like in marriage? And then the question of why does this all matter? Why is this submission thing so important? So let's start by diving into that first question. What is submission? Submission at its core, simple term is this. It's to place myself under the influence of another. It's to allow them space to influence me. It's to allow them space to provide leadership in my life. It's this recognition that I'm not doing life alone, that my life is somehow bound to another who I'm letting have a say and agency and influence in my life. Now, you'll notice maybe in uh, chapter three, verse one, that, that Peter included this interesting statement. He says, wives in the same way. Now, if you just pick up and read in chapter three, you should be asking this question, In the same way as what? Because this teaching is directly tied to Pastor Steve's teaching last week. In chapter 2 of 1 Peter, Peter taught us what submission looks like. And now he goes, in your submission to civil authorities, the emperor, the governor, this process of submitting. Oh, by the way, that same pattern of submission should follow you into your married life. In the same way, in the same pattern. So watch how this unfolds. There's core components of submission that we need to understand. Number one is this, recognize that ultimately submission is to God. When we talk about submission, it is first and foremost submitting to God. And listen to what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 16. He says, live as free people, as people who've been set free by the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? He says, live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. In other words, he's saying, yes, you've been set free, but don't use your freedom to go, I'm just going to do whatever I want. Notice what he says at the end of verse 16. He says, don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Rather, he says, live as God's slaves. That, that is strong language. Peter says you should recognize that you've been set free from sin, but your life is now to be submitted fully and completely to God. In fact, I mean, that, that word slave is, is strong. 
What he's saying is your life is not about your agenda. Your life is not saying, I've been set free. I'm going to do what I want. No, Peter says, you have to recognize that your life belongs to God. You're surrendering and submitting it to him. And when you live as a servant, your agenda is no longer your own, right? When, when you live as a servant, your agenda is the master's agenda. And so what Peter is saying, when he talks to wives, submit to your own husbands in the same way. He's saying, recognize that first and foremost, you are submitted to God. And your question is, how can I bring God's purpose, priorities, and presence into my marriage relationship? When you live as God's servant, you're saying, how can I ultimately serve the purpose that God has for my marriage? In verse one, as a wife. How can I invest in this relationship? How can I invest in my husband? How can I bring the truth and the wisdom of how God would have us to live? I am submitted to him first and foremost. And in submission to God as as his servant, I'm seeking then to serve my spouse. I've been set free from sin. I've been set free from selfishness so that I can invest sacrificially in my marriage. Second core component of submission is this. We are to proactively do what is good. So in chapter two, verse 15, Peter says it this way. He says, For it is God's will, and he's talking to the church at this point in chapter 2, 15. He says, it's God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. In other words, what Peter is saying is, you bring the truth of the gospel to bear on your lives. And when he talks about doing good, he's not just saying acts of good deeds. He's saying you are living a good life rooted in the redemptive possibilities of God's grace. You have been changed. You have been transformed. You've been redeemed. He's saying live out the goodness of God so that culture sees you and goes, man, there's something different about you. So now, right? Follow me. As Peter brings this teaching over to marriage, right? You're submitted to God. You're living as his servant. You're asking, what is God's purpose for my marriage? What is God's purpose for my spouse? How can I serve my spouse and serve God in so doing? Now, when Peter says uh, uh, you should do good and let that be a testimony, the question is, how can I bring the truth of the gospel into the rhythm, pattern, and flow of how we live in marriage together? Right? That's what Peter, when he uses this phrase in the same way, which by again, uh, by the way, he repeats again in verse six, he's saying that teaching on submission, that doesn't stand alone. That teaching on submission in chapter two should absolutely radically change your married life. Third component of submission. So we're to recognize that ultimate submission is to God. We're to proactively do what is good. And then he says this, submission honors and respects others. First Peter two, 17. He says, show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers, fear God, and honor the emperor. Notice what he says right away. Show proper respect to everyone. And now in chapter three, Peter says, in the same way, in that same pattern, which by the way, he says to both husbands and wives, you should show honor and respect to everyone. Now, here's a problem, church. If we dive in right at chapter three and we miss chapter two, we miss the foundational concepts for what submission is. We have to understand chapter two, that we are living as God's servant, that we're to proactively do what is biblically right and good and true, and that we're to honor and respect everyone. That is the framework within which Peter is describing the submission as husband and wife. And it radically can transform what married life looks like. So let's jump to this next question. We've talked about submission, what it is. Let's talk about what does submission look like? And and again, right, this is where we wrestle with submission because when, when we ask what does submission look like, what we're really asking is how do I apply this to my marriage? How do I actually live this out? What does it practically, tangibly look like? And y'all, I still don't like the idea of submission. 
right? It's still not something I look at and go, yay, I get to wrestle with how to give up my, my freedoms and, and live in unity with somebody else and create room and space for them. This is challenging, right? Last week, Pastor Steve talked about in, in submission, we're talking about grown-up, mature things of faith. So let's dive into this conversation of Christian maturity. What does submission look like? We're going to go back to 1 Peter 3, verse 1. Tyler, if you'll throw perfect. 1 Peter 3, 1. What does submission look like? Peter breaks this into two sections. He first addresses wives, and then he comes back and he talks to the husband. So let's look at this. 1 Peter 3, 1. Now notice that Peter says wives in the same way, right? In the same pattern of submission that we talked about before. We walked through that in the core components of submission in chapter 2. Now notice he says, submit yourselves, look, to your own husbands. Now notice that Peter is not talking about women in general submitting to men in general. He's saying, no, this is within the context of the marriage relationship. Submit to your own husband, not to someone else's husband, not to some random uh, man that you don't know. This is wives and husbands. That's the context of this teaching. Submit yourselves to your own husbands. Why? There's a purpose to this. He says, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. Let's walk through this. First, let's address socially and politically uh, and geopolitically what's happening. You have to remember that Peter is writing this letter to Roman provinces in Asia Minor. Now, part of what happened in that day and age is that the man as the patriarch of the family, he set the religious trajectory of the entire family. Now, in in this Roman province of Asia Minor, as most Roman provinces, the the husband of the family, as most people did, likely worshipped the Roman uh, religion. The Roman religion was one in which the emperor was worshipped as sort of a divine figure. And after the emperor, you had the pantheon of Roman gods like Jupiter and and all of the rest of the Roman gods. And in this culture, worshipping the Roman religion was part of fitting into culture. In fact, if you did not recognize that the emperor was somehow a divine figure, you you could be accused of treason. This is part of why the church was, uh, uh, oh, what's that word? Persecuted. I lost it. Part of why the church was persecuted was because they said Jesus is Lord, not Caesar is Lord, right? That, that, That was a radical statement. So in this culture, the husband, if he is following the Roman religion, his, his wife, his children, and his servants all had to follow that religion. And if the husband converted to a new religion, his whole family by de facto converted. Now, here's what happened. In Asia Minor, you had a number of people who came to follow Jesus Christ. Included in that was a number of women who gave their lives to Christ. Now, when that woman becomes a convert to Christianity, but her husband doesn't, there's already a a, a tension in the home. The husband in that culture would read that as a sign of rebellious disrespect. Why are you not following the family religion? And so now there's this group of believers that are going, how do I influence my husband? And so Peter writes this letter, this portion of the letter, to say, wives, with an unbelieving husband, here's part of how you can influence your husband on behalf of Christ. One of the first things that he says is, he says, submit to your own husbands. What he's saying is, don't adopt an oppositional adversarial perspective, right? Just because you've converted to Christianity, don't look at your husband and say, well, I don't have to follow your leadership anymore. In other words, what he's saying is don't feed into that culturally defined rhythm of disrespect because you're not following your husband's religion. He says, still fall under your husband's leadership. Let him influence you. Let him lead the family, even as you live differently for Jesus Christ. And he says, the goal here is that in living for Christ, your holy living becomes a testimony to the power of the gospel. So your husband who follows the Roman religion looks at the the, the credibility of his wife's testimony and goes, what do you have? 
that I don't have. And by the virtue of the transformative power of the faith of his wife, the husband, Peter says, can be won over by seeing the transformative power of the gospel in the life of his wife. So what does it look like? And by the way, what he talks to, to unbelieving wives, is applicable to all of us. We have to wrestle with this concept of submission, of letting our husbands lead and influence us. Now, this is a mutual relationship. We'll come back to that and talk about how husbands do this in a second. Second thing we see as he addresses wives is he says, a wife's holy life becomes a gospel testimony to her husband, right? They can be won over by, without words by the behavior of their wives. And then Paul says this. He says, you should cultivate a life of inner virtue. Notice what he says in three and four. He says, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, he says, it should be that of your inner self. Now, don't read things into the text that aren't there, right? He doesn't say that gold and elaborate hairstyles and fine jewelry, did he say those are wrong? No. He doesn't say those are wrong. What he says, rather, is don't let that be the limit of what you're investing in. Right? Don't only cultivate an outward life of beauty. What Peter says is, wives, cultivate an inner life of virtue. And it doesn't mean virtue in a secular sense, right? It's not just doing good things and being a good person. When he talks about virtue, he's saying, live a holy life rooted in Jesus Christ. Cultivate a life of relational intimacy with Jesus. Because as you live rooted in faith, cultivating a life of inner holiness, that will impact the life of your husband. You will begin to lead and influence your husband as you lead the way in faith when your husband is an unbeliever. So he doesn't say the outward things are wrong. He goes, don't let that be the limit of what you're investing in. Do the hard work of cultivating a deep connection with God so that it can be a transformative means of God's grace in the life of your husband. Fourth, he says, rather it should be that of your inner self. And then he says this, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Now, here again, we've, we've maybe heard this passage abused. And it says, a gentle and quiet spirit. So does that mean that the wife should be passive? Does it mean that the wife should be silent? Does the text say that? It does not, right? The text doesn't say that the wife can't speak. It doesn't say that the wife should be passive. The, the, the idea communicated here, a gentle and quiet spirit, is of, it, it's the idea of a woman at peace. A woman who's connected with Jesus Christ. A woman who has a gentle and, and peace-filled demeanor that can be an agent of peace a transformative agent of peace in the life of her family. And, and, and again, we have to remember the cultural context here, right? Peter is saying, don't adopt an adversarial relationship with your husband because you follow Christ and he follows the Roman religion. And, and so don't adopt this perspective of, being, uh, of wanting to argue with him into the faith. He goes, no, cultivate a life of inner vir virtue. Be connected deeply in faith to Jesus Christ and be a woman at peace with God that becomes a peace-filled uh, uh, person in the home. One scholar said, you could uh, translate this in the negative, don't have a cantankerous presence. Kind of an old word meaning, don't be quick to jump to an argumentative disposition. But again, a gentle, quiet spirit is one in which you embody a presence of peace in the home. Now, that's Peter's address to, to wives. If you stop there, you are entirely mistreating this text. If you were going to take uh, 1 Peter 1, 3, 1 to 6 seriously, you must read chapter 2 and you must read verse 7. Listen to what verse 7. Now we switch and we're going to address husbands, right? 
So let's talk about what submission looks like for husbands. Now, Peter doesn't use the word submit directly, but notice what he says. He says, husbands in the same way. This ties the role of the husband back to the, 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 the conversation of submission. So what we see here, church, is that submission is mutual. There, there's a sense in which the husband is also called to that disposition to recognize that he is submitted to God as God's servant. And so the husband is asking this question, as someone who's serving God, how do I then serve my spouse? How do I serve my wife well? The same things that, that Peter calls wives to, there's a similar element. In the same way, that same pattern and rhythm of submission carries over to how the husband is to lead. Husbands in the same way. Now notice what Peter says. He says, in the same way, be considerate. Or the ESV translates it this way. Live with your wives in an understanding way. So here's the question I want to ask husbands. Do you know your wife? Maybe you experienced this. I experienced this dynamic, right? Life is busy. We get the kids up early in the morning and we're running to school and sometimes they're in bad moods and sometimes I'm in a bad mood and you get the kids off to school and I'm out the door to come to work and she's going to work and then in the evenings we've got to make dinner and clean up and do all the things and then we get a date night and on date night we talk about the budget. I hate that conversation, you know, that's always like a not fun one. Uh, And then we talk about the kids' schedules and we talk about all these things but we never get to talk about us. There's this question I stole Uh, from one of my best friends and mentors that he asked his wife, his kids, grandkids, he asked him this question, how is it with your heart? And and when you ask the question, it kind of feels weird. Like, you know, I guess my pulse is good. I think I'm, I mean, I guess I'm a lot. No, but it's the question of deep down, how how are you? And, And often on our date nights, one of the questions I've tried to ask is how, how are we? And included with that for me is what do we feel about our calling here? Right? We're, we're always asking, how are we spiritually? What is God doing in us? And the, and the question for me really is the question of, do I know my wife's heart? Now, can, can, I, can I frame out for you how countercultural this is? The culture in which Peter is writing is a culture in which women could not own property. This was a culture in which domestic abuse was not just tolerated, it was a fact of life. The husband in this culture could go worship at the pagan temples. He could sleep with a temple prostitute and come home. And his wife just, she shouldn't ask any questions. And if the husband was physically abusive, the wife had no recourse. She, she was essentially powerless in this culture. In fact, the husband had the, the legal ability to divorce his wife, but wives could not often do the other way. They could not divorce their husbands. They weren't allowed that legal privilege. And so what happened is you had this culture where by and large, men could abuse and take advantage of women and women had no recourse. But now Peter, in a very countercultural way, he says, husbands, when you were a follower of Jesus Christ, you should never, in a, in a way that takes advantage of your wife's social and economic vulnerability, you should never abuse that. In fact, Peter switches it and he says, proactively, live with your wives in an understanding way. Seek to know her. Do you know what she wants? Do you know what she desires? Do you know what makes her heart come alive? Do you know how to invest in your wife in a way that allows her to flourish and grow and to become the best version of herself that God has designed and created her to be? Think about that simple word, considerate. We might teach our children to be considerate, but I think as adults, we need a refresher. 
To be considerate of your wives doesn't just mean like, oh, I'm thinking about what she needs. No, to be considerate means I am creating room and space for her need, wants, and desires and her flourishing within the context of our relationship. Do you know your wife? Do you know what makes her heart come alive? Day in, day out, are you serving her as a servant of God? This is what Peter calls us to. Secondly, notice what Peter says. He says, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. And he says, treat them with respect. Or as the ESV says, he says, show them honor. And Peter calls husbands to show honor and respect to their wives. Now, what's, what's fascinating, as you read both 1 Peter chapter 2 and chapter 3, is in chapter 2, uh, Peter reminded the believers to show honor and respect to the emperor. And you read that and you go, well, that makes sense. The person in the, the position of highest power, we should respect that person. But now, Peter, again, church, this is revolutionary teaching in this culture. He says, by the way, you should show honor and respect, not just to the emperor because of his position and power. He says, husbands, you should show your wives honor and respect. Not because of the position of power and authority, but because you are serving God's purposes in your marriage. Show them honor and respect. And, and again, church, this is a culture in which women could be abused. So when, when Paul says, treat them with honor and respect, this phrase, as the weaker vessel, he's not saying women are less than men. No, what he's saying is you need to recognize in the culture that he's writing that your women, your women, that women in your lives are economically vulnerable. Women in this culture could not own property. They could not receive an inheritance. And for the most part, they didn't have the ability to get a job and for sure not an education, most likely. So when he calls them the weaker partner, he's saying, recognize that in the culture in which you live, women are vulnerable. Secondly, when he describes women as the weaker partner, I think Peter is speaking to this reality that there's often a biological distinction in which men have more strength often than women. And again, this is a culture in which domestic violence was not just tolerated, it was accepted as a fact of life. And what Peter is saying here is honor and respect your wife deeply and never use your strength, whether economic or physical, in a coercive way with your wife. And listen, listen. Maybe you're sitting in church and you go, I would never hit my wife or I would never lay hands on her. But men, I think sometimes we don't acknowledge the coercive power of anger, right? Sometimes we want to get our agenda. And so we power up in anger and we don't recognize that there is an emotional violence that's done in that process in which we're using strength and emotional energy to be coercive. That is the kind of thing that Peter would say, don't do that. Instead, show honor and respect, create room and space to pour into and to invest in your wife's well-being and flourishing. Right? So as Peter talks to husbands, he says, live with your wives in an understanding way. Treat them with honor and respect. And then he says something that, that totally revolutionizes this relationship. He says, uh, treat them with respect as the weaker partner gets this. And he says, and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. Now, I'm going to guess as you read through this, you read right through that passage and go, oh yeah, uh, heirs with us of God's grace. Sure. But, but church, this, this culture practice the, the, uh, the concept of primogeniture. And, and primogeniture is this reality that in that culture, when the patriarch of the family died, only the firstborn male received an inheritance. So this is a culture in which if you were the firstborn male, you got all of the inheritance. If you were the daughter of the father, you got nothing. 
right? Only the firstborn male received the inheritance. What Peter says here that is so radical and countercultural is he goes, not so in the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, you recognize that your wife is a daughter of God. He is, she is a daughter of the king. She's not less than, she is co-equal with you in value and in worth. And in your wife will be an inheritor of God's gift of grace, just like you are. She has access to the presence and power of God, just like you do. She is in every way equal in worth and value with you. And, and this is a culture. If you were a, a Roman citizen who's not a believer and you read this, you would go, the Christians are heretics. They, they are overturning the very rhythm and fabric of Roman culture and society. And guess what, church? The Christians were overturning the very fabric and structure of Roman society for something that is so much deeper and better and something that was so much richer. Can, can, can I tell you why I'm passionate about this? I I sit down all of the time with people in relationships and marriages that are falling apart, whose hearts are crushed, and they're looking at me with desperation in their eyes going, what do we do? And so church, for me this morning as a pastor and as a shepherd in this community, I'm begging you to see and understand this, to start to build our lives and our marriages on this foundation so we don't let them get to the place relationally, metaphorically, where that broken down house was. Let's do the work now to go, how do I honor and respect and submit to my wife and serve her well so that she can flourish? Now, here's the other thing. Notice how Peter ends this. He says, treat them with honor and respect. Be considerate. Recognize that they are of equal worth and value with you. He says, why? So that nothing will hinder your prayers. I've had these moments, right, where... I'm praying, I'm, maybe I'm doing sermon prep and, and me and God are talking. And in that moment, I sense God saying, we don't get to have a conversation. You need to go and ask your wife for forgiveness. And I'm like, okay, I, I will, but God, let, like, let's you and me talk for a moment. He's like, sorry, when you disrespect my daughter, you don't get to talk to me. Oof. Now he, here's the thing, men. In that moment, we have two options. Either we go to our wives and we pursue reconciliation or we knowingly, consciously become deaf to the voice of God. Because what we do is we say, I'm not going to do that. We become disobedient. And what we start saying is, God, I don't want to hear that. I'm going to shut my, my spiritual life and ears to that voice. And we become obstinate and we begin to have a calcified heart. And we have to recognize, husbands, that a relational rupture with our wives becomes a significant inhibitor in our own spiritual growth. Why? Because when the two become one flesh, we're doing all of it together. And in the husband-wife relationship is not only relational, it's not only sexual, it's emotional, it's spiritual as well. All of those things, when we talk about becoming one flesh, it doesn't just mean the physical union, it means you become one life together. So last week, Pastor Steve talked about this reality that these conversations are grown-up conversations, right? This isn't for the faint of heart. This isn't for, like, we've got to push into mature things. Can we have a grown-up conversation? Here's, in the note guide, I called it the in-development question. It's the immature question. Can I just say that? The immature question, when we ask, why does submission matter? We have to recognize submission is a mark of Christian maturity. Ephesians 5, Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. When you honor Christ, you submit to one another. We'll go to Ephesians 5 in a second. That that is in the context of marriage. But I want to ask and reframe some questions. I want us to ask mature questions. Here's the immature question that a husband might ask. Why won't my wife submit? Husbands, be with me now. 
If you're asking that question, you've already situated the relationship in positional power and authority, and you're already in the wrong. The immature question, why won't my wife submit, needs to be replaced with a question of maturity, which is this. Am I serving my wife in a way that is worthy of her submission? It's a different question. It reframes it in in service, in sacrificial giving, and in loving your spouse well. And and here's the thing, church. This this is sort of uh, an aside to Peter's point here. But do you recognize that Peter reframes leadership? We like to think about leadership in terms of positional power, authority. And what we think is once I'm the leader and have the power and authority, I have the freedom to do what I want. And Peter goes, no, no, no. If you are a leader, leadership is about sacrificial service and giving and surrender. And so when he talks about husbands providing leadership in the home and having influence in the, wi- in the lives of their wives, what he's saying is that needs to be rooted in a life of holy living. And you recognize that Christian leadership is not about power and authority and freedom to do what you want. It is that you have been set free from sin to serve in selfless and sacrificial ways. This is what Pastor Serenity said in Philippians 2. Y'all's attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, had all the power, all the authority, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself a servant. Husbands, we are to become the chief servants in our home. Jesus says, even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And husbands, too many of us are too concerned about our individual agendas and about the, the, the stereotypical loss of freedom that marriage is. It is not. I, I don't even like when I'm doing weddings and, you know, the family jokes about, oh, the old ball and chain or you can't do anything you want anymore. I, I absolutely hate that. Because in marriage, you find this freedom in which your wife becomes the grace-filled presence of God in your life, and it becomes a transformational process of spiritual growth for both of you. Now, for wives, I think the, the immature question that we ask is, why can't I do what I want? Do I have to submit? I think that needs to re- be replaced with a mature question of, how are my husband and I aligned in serving Christ together? Because if my wife and I are both going, hey, we're living submitted to God as his servants, how do, how do we do that together? How do we cultivate this life for both of us of mutual service and sacrifice and surrender? And so here it is, church. I think biblically, submission is a mutual posture of love and service to each other. So I want to close this out with reading Ephesians chapter 5. You heard me reference it earlier. Ephesians 5 verse 21 says this. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Notice how it's mutual. This is in the context of submit to one another. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the savior. Now as church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. But listen to verse 25. But husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. And and, and if you jump right in at verse 22, wives submit to your husbands, you miss the whole point of this passage. Did, Did you notice what Paul says? He says, husbands, Love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave his life up for her. That that means I am called as a husband to lead in my home with a sacrificial love and submission that Jesus modeled when he gave up his life for the salvation of the church. Now, when you look at that phrase, uh, 
Wives, submit to your husbands, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. Now, do you see how Jesus modeled headship? When Jesus, as the head of the church, he went to the cross sacrificially, lovingly, so that the church could flourish, so that we could be made whole, so that we could spiritually grow up in Christ. And then Peter says, husbands, in the same way, if we're going to practice biblical headship, we are to love our wives sacrificially. We are to surrender ourselves over in service to our marriages. And church, here's the, this is, we, we go, well, what about my needs and wants? Here's the beautiful thing. When this is truly mutual, the wife is sacrificially, or the husband is sacrificially loving and serving his wife, giving himself up for her so that she can flourish. And when the husband is pouring into the wife in that manner, the wife can follow that kind of leadership and influence because she knows that her husband has her best interests at heart. So men, we are not to lead the way in positional power and authority for our own agenda. Men, we are to lead the way in sacrificially loving and serving our wives. So here's some reflection questions I want to leave us with. Wives, I I want you to wrestle with this question. And by the way, I didn't just like come up with these. I did have my wife read them. I wanted her input. I thought that was important. In what arenas of life do you trust or not trust your husband to lead? And why is that? Are there places where you go, man, I'm just not sure I trust your leadership. And men, we have to be grown up enough to hear that. That there's areas where maybe our wife doesn't trust us to lead well. Second question is, am I cultivating a life of inner virtue and holiness? For husbands, I want us to wrestle with these questions. Am I daily seeking to know and invest in my wife? In what ways have I not treated my wife with honor and respect? And then together, husbands and wives, wrestle with these questions. Are there places where we're not living in mutual submission? Where do we feel like one or the other of us needs control? Why is that? And, and third, here's this last question, right? I recognize not everyone in here is married. In general, here's the question I want you to ask. What does the practice of submission look like in your life? Because if you struggle to submit at work, if you struggle to submit with your professor, if you struggle to submit to your parents, I promise you that pattern and rhythm of a lack of submission will follow you into your marriage in a detrimental way. So even if you're not, I want you to just ask, what is that rhythm and pattern of biblical submission? Is it in my life? Do I do this well? If not, why not? Ask those hard questions. In church, I truly believe that this has transformative power to reframe how we do marriage. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you um, for Peter's teaching here. And I thank you for the ways that he challenges us all to live and walk ultimately in submission to you, Lord. And Father, I just, I pray this morning for marriages that are maybe in a really difficult place. Maybe there's marriages here where people are going, I'm not sure we're gonna make it. God, I pray that this truth of your word would strike hearts this morning in real ways. That we would recognize, Father, that so much of marriage is about learning to let go of my needs, my wants, and inviting my spouse into this relationship in which we create room and space for their needs, for their wants and their flourishing. And Father, it's in this place of mutual submission, husbands and wives looking out for the interests of others, living in considerate ways, being people of peace in the home. It is in these mutual relationships that your word calls us to, that we see and experience ultimately the flourishing that can happen in marriages. And I pray, Father, that our marriages as people of Christ, as followers of Jesus, I pray that the way we do married life would be a powerful testimony to our world 
of the presence of the gospel. I pray that people would look at Christian marriages and go, why do you love and serve each other that way? How do you have and experience this joy in marriage that I want? Where does it come from? And I pray, Father, that we would declare the gospel of Jesus Christ by how we live as husbands and wives. And Father, may this all be for your glory and yours alone. And so, Father, again, I pray for our marriages. Would you bring redemption where it's needed? Would you bring restoration where it's needed? Would you bring, Holy Spirit, conviction where it's needed? Would you bring comfort where it's needed? Would you bring discernment and direction where it's needed? I pray against strongholds of addiction. I pray against strongholds where resentment has grown up and hearts have become callous. Father, in this moment, break those things down. Father, we need a fresh wind, a fresh outpouring of your Spirit to guide us into truth and righteousness and holiness in our marriages. And so, Father, where walls are built up, tear them down because you declare Jesus that you can destroy the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. And where that has grown up in marriages, let it be gone, Lord, in the power of Jesus' name, in the presence of your spirit, Lord. Amen.